historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. A few days ago, the Israeli government approved a controversial proposed law dealing with a draft into the Israeli Defense Forces for Haredi Yeshiva students. Israelis who spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, like myself, have witnessed on several occasions massive demonstrations of Haredi Yeshiva students protesting the mere thought of their being drafted into the Israeli Defense Forces, even though it's a mandatory draft. Now, in Jerusalem, you see a lot of demonstrations, but not like these, since they show up in massive numbers. We're talking, at times, hundreds of thousands of demonstrators. I've often confronted some of these guys saying, hey, why don't you serve in the army like everybody else? If you're surprised, don't be. In Israel, we're often direct and in your face. It's part of the culture. They often reply, we are soldiers. We are soldiers of God. If Israel is safe, it is first and foremost because of us. And then they continue, and by the way, who is everybody else? Half the eligible population for draft into the military doesn't even serve one day. I hated to admit it, but they were right. Indeed, about 50% of all eligible men and women don't serve in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. But the Haredi students make up a large part of that 50%. That is probably the reason why many in a secular community in Israel view the Haredi yeshiva students as selfish and unwilling to share et ashivyon benetel. In English, to share the burden of serving the Jewish state. Take someone like myself, and I'm not unique. I did three years of service in a combat unit, and that was only the beginning of my military service. From age 21, after being discharged, I served an additional month every year in the mandatory reserves until the age of 45. Oh, and in times of tension and conflict, happens often enough in span of 24 years. After all, I live in the Middle East. You get called up and it doesn't count as part of the month per year. That's at least a total of five years of your life and not fun either. I spend an extensive amount of time in Lebanon, Gaza, and the West Bank. It isn't only difficult physically, it is also emotionally draining. In short, the burden is heavy, very heavy. So why did I do it? Well, obviously to defend my home and my family, but also and mainly because I was a part of a collective idea of the revival of the Jewish homeland. And one of the main vehicles of revival and security was serving in the IDF. Look, I'll be very honest. I hated the army. I had no issue ideologically. And although I would love to see world peace, I'm not really a pacifist. The reason I hated the army is because I hated being told what to do. But I had bought hook, line, and sinker, the ideology, and still do. In the words of David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces must serve not only as a military training apparatus, but also as a state school that imbues the youth entering the ranks with knowledge of the language, the country, Jewish history, the fundamentals of general education, neatness and order, and most importantly, love of the homeland. The IDF is different. It really is. It's different than the other armies. Yes, its first and foremost important job is to defend the state of Israel, and it does a pretty good job at that, but it goes way beyond. The original idea of the IDF was to be an army of the people. I know that sounds a bit sloganish, if that word even exists, and it is, but the foundation of the IDF was based on several concepts other then just the words of David Ben-Gurion. The IDF was to be the great equalizer. All 18-year-old men and women of all walks of life would serve. All start at the lowest ranks, no exception made. Together, they would form the future society. So the IDF would basically act as a melting pot that unites a diverse society into one nation. 
The other concept was that the IDF mission wasn't only in maintaining security, it was also in the social arena, such as absorbing of immigrants from all over the world, creating communities physically on the ground, and making the desert bloom. That was at the outset, and as great as that may sound, and as needed as it was, plenty of communities did not possess the same ideas or goals. The ultra-Orthodox Jews, known as the Haredi community, never did. They preferred to be isolated, sticking with their own community. Neither did the majority of the Arab community for obvious reasons. So it's complicated. So much so that the current government, made of political leaders that strongly advocate for drafting the Haredi yeshiva students, have done exactly the opposite. Instead of mandating larger numbers from the Haredi community to be drafted into the IDF, they actually reduced it. And I, for one, totally agree. Yes, agree. So, as always, let's take a deeper look. First of all, context. How did this come about that Haredi Yeshiva students aren't drafted for army service? When Israel was established, then-Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion was approached by the observant leadership and asked to give an exemption for 400 Yeshiva students. Their assertion was that these students are destined to be the future religious leadership. Military service would completely eradicate the potential of Torah wisdom and becoming religious leaders. Ben-Gurion and the then-Israeli government accepted the reasoning. After all, there are only 400 students. Now, the students were not just given formal exemption from service. A formula was put into place. Once a year, the students would show up at the draft office, prove that they're indeed studying yeshiva, and have their service deferred for a year. This would take place once a year, every year, until the age of 41, or 31 if you had five kids or more. Then they would be formally exempt. Just as an anecdote, five kids or more in the Haredi community by the age of 31 is more common than uncommon. Oh, and most importantly, during the entire time, age 18 until you're 41, or 31 if you had five kids or more, they cannot go to work, only study yeshiva. If they want to work, they need to join the IDF first. Well, the number of 400 students has grown, really grown. In 2020, over 50,000 students received deferrals. Mind you, the regular army is roughly 200,000, so that's 25%. Furthermore, as the years passed, the age of exemption went down from age 41 to 24. Once a year, the Minister of Defense would sign a deed that renewed this agreement, this formula. That was until 1998. In 1998, the Supreme Court of Israel, serving among other things as the checks and balances to the government and parliament, determined that it isn't legal for the Minister of Defense to have the sole authority to defer or give exemptions to such a vast number of people. They determined that there needs to be a specific law enacted in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Look, I don't want to bore you with all the legal questions and political jockeying. I'll just say that in the last 10 years, two laws have been enacted both of them deemed unacceptable and unlawful by the Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court held 10 proceedings in the last few years. Once again, the Supreme Court didn't say that they should either draft the Haredi or not draft the Haredi. What they said was, you want to not draft them? Make a law. You want to draft them? Make a law. You can't just have one person, the Minister of Defense, decide for 50,000 people. But let's dig even deeper. It is not just Haredim not serving in the IDF. According to the IDF spokesman's office, in 2019, only 69% of all eligible men were drafted. And of those, only 58% completed their full three-year regular service. That's an 11% dropout. In terms of eligible women, only 56% were drafted, and of those, only 49% completed their full three-year regular service. Now, to these numbers add Arab men and women, the overwhelming majority of which don't serve in the IDF. Then, only 40% of all men and 33% of all women actually serve in the IDF. You may ask, 
why doesn't the government and the IDF really enforce the draft? They have all the necessary tools to do so. Well, look, first world developed countries like in Europe and the United States have realized that a mandatory draft into military service is to a large extent unproductive and significantly expensive compared to a volunteer career military. Noteworthy research was conducted in the United States at the end of the 1960s in regards to the draft system for the Vietnam War. The well-known American economist Milton Friedman claimed that a professional army in which those serving in it do so by choice rather than coercion is a military that is able to garner the potential of human capital in a much better way. Other economists analyzing Friedman's claim determined that he is correct and that a professional military can yield the same military functionality at 30% less manpower. But even in the US, National Guard forces of individual states account for approximately 47% of the country's armed forces in a way that is similar to Israel's Miluim service. In English, the Israeli reserves. Regardless, Israel's circumstances are greatly different than that of the United States and certainly Europe. Most free countries face limited military threats, such as terrorism, which a professional, small and effective army can deal with well. But there's hardly any free country that faces the threat of an all-out war like Israel. For Israel, losing a war means destruction. And therefore, we cannot afford to lose any war. To ensure that we always win, say without a mandatory draft, we would need an extremely large professional army. Such an army, which is entirely funded by full pay, is much more expensive than the solution that Israel currently employs. That is to say, a compulsory army service for men ages 18 and 21 and for women ages 18 to 20. A relatively small career permanent army with a large reserve army that can only be called up for service when really needed basically for war, providing, of course, that these reserves train often enough preparing for that war. But there's another very important reason for maintaining a mandatory draft in Israel, and that is the quality of human capital. The transition from a compulsory army to an army of choice could lead to a significant decline in the quality of the people who choose the army as a profession for life. I apologize if this sounds offensive, but note that the U.S., almost reversed its decision to cancel the draft due to the quality of people that chose a military career, sometimes as their last option. The American military, however, figured it out, raised salaries significantly. Then, and only then, were they able to attract people whose number one choice was military service and were compensated accordingly. So the IDF wants to keep our system as is, but at the same time understands that unmotivated soldiers forced into service is a losing formula. They would never say this out loud, but the IDF realizes that the amount of time and money spent on rebellious, uninspired soldiers isn't worth it. It pains me to say it, but the IDF as a people's army I spoke about earlier never truly existed in a sense that the burden was never shared equally. The current government, and honestly, most governments before that, understood that it's much more important for Haredi Yeshiva boys to participate in the workforce rather than fighting in an ineffective battle to make them motivated soldiers. But for the current government to declare a total exemption would be highly unpopular politically, and so they found the middle ground, bring down the exemption to age 21. That, by the way, is the same age male soldiers are discharged from regular service. After that, the Haredi will be able to join the workforce. Oh, and it does get more complicated because there are those government members that do not want to see an exemption for the Haredi so early on. So they reach the middle ground. And the middle ground is that within the next year, all those that reach the age of 21 
will be exempt from military service. A year later, it's 22. Three years from now, it's actually 23. But if within the ages of 21 to 23, in the next three years, people from the Haredi community do a national service in the hospitals or schools or whatever is deemed social service, at the end of that year, they will have a full exemption. Israeli parliamentary politics at its best. And I do say that cynically. Now let's take a look at the Arab community. A few words about Muslims and Christian Arab Israelis. There's no mandatory draft for either group. So those that do end up serving are highly motivated. As of 2017, one-third of all Christian Arabs aged 18 or so participate in either a national service or enlist in the IDF. This is mainly due to a Greek Orthodox religious leader named Jibril Nadaf, who strongly believes that Arabs should serve the state that they are citizens of. His activities and the activities of a forum that he set up led to the recruitment of hundreds of Christians for service in the IDF and especially for national service working for the community. Another anecdote um, that could work only in Israel. The Christian Arab youth receive a mandatory draft notice from the IDF. At that point, they have two choices. They can either throw it in a wastebasket and nothing will be done, or they can use it to begin the process of being drafted into the IDF. So, not exactly mandatory, but hey, we'll take what we can get. What about the Muslim Arabs living in Israel? You may be surprised to hear that many of them actually do want to serve. A formal IDF report shows an increase, although small, in Muslims serving. In 2008, there were 436 Muslims drafted. In 2019, 489, and in 2020, 606. Look, these are small numbers, but they are slowly on the rise. The Arab Muslim society exerts very heavy pressure on their youth not to serve in the IDF. If this was not the case, many thousands would enlist for regular service. Okay, let's now go back to the general population and talk about the IDF as a tool in shaping the consciousness of Israelis. From Israel's establishment and until around the Six-Day War in 1967, the public of Israel felt existential danger. War became a force that shaped Israel's consciousness. The IDF, therefore, stood at the center of the Israeli experience, really in all walks of life. The economy, national planning, building, literature, poetry, music, film, theater, and more. Israelis felt, and were made to feel, that they need to give to the state. Remember when the United States President Kennedy said, ask not what your country could do for you, but what you can do for your country. That was Israel. As time passed, Israel matured, Israelis felt less in an existential threat, the economy, becoming capitalistic-oriented, strengthened. The idea of a fighting nation and society made way for a more Western-style consumer society. These kind of societies tend to reject the idea of military as a way of life. So what should be the purpose of the IDF, other than, of course, defending Israel. To attempt an answer, we need to look at the current generation serving in the IDF. Who are they and what is their motivation? According to Reuven Gal, an expert psychologist in social occupational organization and researcher of the military and social interface in Israel, there are four types of motivations to service in the IDF. The first is a motivation of survival, which occurs when there is no alternative but to enlist and fight. It characterizes situations when societies struggle for their own existence and survival. This type of motivation existed in Israel mainly during its first years of existence, 1948, the War of Independence, 
1967 the Six Day War, to an extent the 1973 Yom Kippur War, but that decreased as Israel grew strong and its enemies weakened. The second is an ideological motivation of the love of the land. In the first generations of Israelis, this was the case primarily among the pioneers and those encompassing pioneering spirit. The kibbutz population was a direct fit and served in combat and leadership roles way beyond their proportion in the population. I just finished reading a book called Entebbe Declassified, the stories of 35 commandos who flew to Entebbe 4,000 kilometers from Israel in 1976 and rescued Israelis and Jews, over 100 of them, from terrorists and Ugandan soldiers. When you look at the bios of the 35 commandos that broke into the terminal, you find out that the majority of them were from kibbutz, even though less than 5% of Israelis lived on kibbutz at the time. Currently, ideological motivation is disproportionate among youth from the Zionist national religious sector, the kibbutz srugot, the knitted kippah, or the yarmulke. An increasing number of soldiers from these sectors serve in the most active combat units in the IDF and hold command positions in field units. Their motivation is clearly based on the love of the land of Israel and a sense of responsibility for its existence and its defense. By the way, an opposite ideology also exists. Although still minor, it emphasizes universal values above all. This is mostly in some sectors within Israeli left, one that calls for either not serving in the IDF or refusing to serve in certain regions like the West Bank. And yet, most of them still enlist in the IDF simply because that's what their friends do. A third group is motivated ideologically, but also very much individualistically. They understand the need for a successful, outstanding, exceptional army. Individualistically, they desire to have self-actualization or self-fulfillment, which plays a compelling role. I include my daughters in this. One serving now in an intelligence field unit, demanding her to serve beyond the constricted time. My older daughter just finished a three-year service, two years of regular service, and an extra year stemming from the same ideological individualistic motivation and compensation. A third daughter will enlist in a couple years coming of age. My daughters and their friends, also serving in significant roles, belong to the largest group of Israelis that, once again, understand the need for a successful, outstanding, exceptional army. A fourth group, also a large group, serves simply because it is the norm. They see the service as a fact of life, between teenage years and adulthood, high school and then army, then college, and or a career, etc. They are happy to serve and just as happy to be discharged after the mandatory two or three year service. I began this episode with the fact that 50% of eligible draftees either don't serve or don't fully complete their service. The IDF, we've determined, isn't truly a people's army, and a mandatory draft system only applies to parts of the population. But much of the remaining 50% complete a significant service due to the motivations I mentioned just now. Survival, ideology, self-actualization, and the norm. These make up the IDF soldiers whose quality is above and beyond that of our enemies. Not a people's army, and perhaps it never was, but the makeup and profile of the IDF soldier constitutes first and foremost an accurate reflection of Israeli society. If you like Inside Israel, please share with others. You can access all of our episodes on InsideIsrael.fm. You can also access them on Google Podcast, Amazon Podcast, Spotify, Apple, and more.